Well, life is complex and there's a lot coming at us and we're trying to simplify it. And the way we simplify it is through labels and putting people in boxes. And it's easier to do it that way. I mean, it is also the way that we've been doing it for years. And 2,500 years ago, Socrates said, you know, young people today, the problem with them is that they value luxury in the place of hard work. I mean, those are the exact same complaints. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Today, I'm talking with and learning from Dr. Jessica Creedle. Now, she wrote a fabulous book called Unfairly Labeled, which is fascinating because what she does in that book is she completely debunks the notion that millennials are any way different to baby boomers, or in fact, the age or the generation within our workplace is in any way descriptive or useful to us in running our companies. So I had to get her on to have a chat about that, which we do. Also, the work that she does now is working with clients, the business called Culture Partners, to help them intentionally develop the culture that they need to achieve the results that they're setting themselves. So we talk through what the playbook looks like from Culture Partners, and we talk about the pyramid that she has. It's a pyramid of results, which is driven by actions, which is driven by beliefs, which is driven by employee experiences. And I get her to explain to us how she takes clients on a journey and how they intentionally drive some experiences within their organizations to drive phenomenal results. And she gives a great case study of a credit union that they've worked with in the US. So a fantastic description of how to fundamentally change how you think about culture, how to describe to the organization what journey you're on, and then how to craft employee experiences so that the organization will deliver the results that it's seeking. Fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. Hi, my name is Dr. Jessica Kriegel. I am the chief scientist of workplace culture at Culture Partners. And what I do is I research best practices and workplace culture that drive business results. And why do you do that? Like, how do you end up in a job to do this? It's a great question. It began when I had a really terrible workplace culture experience myself. I was feeling demoralized in an environment where I was really set up to succeed. And yet the people that I worked with were toxic and that toxicity just bred upon itself. It fed upon itself and it grew and it grew and it grew. And it really affected me at a personal level. I, I, it, my mental health struggled, my family struggled, my happiness struggled. And so 
I decided I wanted to figure out how we could make sure that people don't go to work for eight hours a day and hate everything about it so that they could be happy and that, you know, businesses could thrive, but also families could thrive. I think that this is one of the places where we can really make a difference in the world. And so doing the research around it is is in an effort to find the data. There's a lot of people out there talking about how to create meaningful workplaces, how to drive results, how to create a great culture. And they're all looking at it from their perspective, their lens. The biases that they hold about what they like and what they enjoy is the lens through which they share their advice. And I consider myself to be culture agnostic. I believe that There isn't the right culture. There is just the culture that is necessary for this business at this time with this leadership and figuring out which one will drive results and also meaning for employees where everybody wins is my passion. Fab. So what's your definition of culture? Culture is the way we think and act to get results. Very simple. And I think that's a great question to kick this off with because so much of the problem with culture and the confusion around culture has to do with everyone has a different definition of it. We are all thinking about culture differently. And so how can we possibly get on the same page about how to operationalize culture and influence culture if we aren't even talking about the same thing? And are you thinking for you, is culture top down, bottom up? Is culture the sum of all of the teams? Yeah, it's leader led. But all of us have an impact in culture. I mean, when I was in that terrible culture environment early in my career, it wasn't the CEO of the company that was problematic. It was my peers at my level, at the individual contributor level, because the way that they acted was creating experiences for me that led to certain beliefs, and that was affecting the way that I acted, and then it would feed upon each other. So we all have a role in co-creating culture. It does start at the top, though. You describe that and I can't help thinking it sounds like you're at some sort of terrible all-girls school where everybody's being really bitchy. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of gossip. It was a lot of storytelling. It was a lot of, uh, well, I could, even my manager was pretty toxic. My very first performance evaluation, when I, I got this job, I was in love with it. I mean, I was, I felt so lucky. It was a tech startup. I was working from home. It was 2008 that I got the job. So, I mean, if you remember 2008, it was not an easy time to get a job. I just graduated from my MBA. So the fact that I even had a job, I was grateful and I was in a field I wanted to be in. My very first performance review, my manager said, you know, you're like one of those millennials. You just need to bake a little bit longer. That was my feedback. And I thought, what does that mean? What do you mean bake? Bake what? What is going on? I mean, I knew that she had some judgment about me that I wasn't cutting it somehow, but I didn't understand what I needed to do differently, what I hadn't done. It was just a terrible experience. You know, I mean, that's what toxic feels like. It can be subtle. Okay. How long were you there for? I stayed. My, I was the original quiet quitter. You know the quiet quitting trend? I made that popular back in 2008. My mentality was, okay, I'm going to do the bare minimum so that I can keep my job. Because it was 2008, right? I mean, it wasn't like the jobs were knocking on the door. So I stayed there and I enrolled in school. I got my doctoral degree. And I didn't tell my boss or my employer that I was in night school. I just had that as my own little side secret project. (laughs) Sanity project. 
You want to hear something amazing, though? After a year, I checked out, right? I was quiet quitting. I was doing the bare minimum. I had another performance evaluation with that same woman. And she said, Jessica, you're doing great. Thank you so much for taking our feedback. You've just been fabulous this last year. She gave me a higher score after I quiet quit. So she said, When I asked her what was different, she said, you know, when you first got here, you were like one of those annoying kids in the front of the classroom, always raising their hand saying, pick me, pick me. And you've stopped doing that. So I was like, oh, it was the volunteering to help that you didn't like. Got it. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. How successful has that business been subsequently? Pretty successful. It ended up. Oh, no, no. It actually got, so the business was Taleo. It was acquired by Oracle in 2012 for a lot of money. So it became a part of Oracle and Oracle just had their best year ever last year. So very well. But I got to work at Oracle for about 10 years as a result of staying at that company and it getting acquired. And I learned so much at Oracle. It was one of the best experiences of my entire career. So it ended up being a win-win. So what did you, so you obviously changed jobs. You weren't working for this terrible woman for 10 years then. No, she, once the acquisition happened, I moved into a different department in Oracle. I was no longer part of that technology. I I had been in the HCM training space, working with the product, and I moved into culture transformation and organizational development in HR. So what's the proudest thing that you achieved in Oracle? Changing Mark Hurd's mind about generational stereotypes. He was a co-CEO with Safra Katz, and he was positioning himself as the expert on millennials because we were hiring 5,000 college graduates every year into product development and sales roles. It was a pipeline play for the future of Oracle leadership and a talent attraction and retention strategy. It was really a fantastic strategy. And so he, it was his pet project. And he started writing a bunch of content about what millennials are like and how to attract and retain millennials. And he was doing all of these, you know, press tours around what millennials want. And that is what I studied in my doctoral program. I mean, you know, when I hold a grudge, I really hold a grudge because she told me I was a millennial and I needed to bake a little bit longer. I took that personally. And when I decided what I was going to write my dissertation on, I said, I want to study millennials and understand exactly what it is that they need to bake about. And in my research, I thought I would learn the key to how to handle millennials. And then I could become this millennial expert that would teach CEOs how to attract and retain millennials. And When I actually did the research, what I found was that was completely fabricated. I mean, the entire notion of a millennial is a stereotype that is made up. It's oversimplifying the complexity of human behavior. And we're we're basically stereotyping and we got to do better. So that surprised me. It's what I led me to write that book, Unfairly Labeled, that allowed people to understand just how much BS is wrapped up in the idea of generational dynamics. And so when I saw Mark Hurd was doing this, my book was coming out. This was all happening in 2013. I remember getting a call from one of the leaders of the HR team at Oracle saying, so you're saying things that's contradicting what our CEO is saying, and it's going to make him look bad. So we're going to need you to stop saying those things. And Yeah, unpublish that book. Right, exactly. And I mean, they got a copy of the manuscript. They had to, there was this whole approval process to make sure that I could publish the book, basically. Anyway, I said, let me talk to Mark. 
<laughs> Let me convince one of the richest men in the world, most powerful men in the world, that he's wrong about something. I got this. I mean, you know, I was a nobody at Oracle. I was an individual contributor in HR. You know, I had no influence. But I just said, I bet I can convince him otherwise. And so I went on this mission. It was funny. I had to have 10 calls with 10 people that wanted to see what I was trying to meet with Mark about in order to make sure that it wasn't a waste of his time. And essentially what I ended up doing was digging into the employee engagement data at Oracle. We had just completed it. I was on the team that analyzed the results. And I said, let's look at it through the lens of generations and let's see what's important to each generation and if they're different. And I found the golden nugget of data, which was that every generation at Oracle valued the same thing the most. And that was career development. And Mark had just published a marketing article in, you know, Forbes or Fortune or one of those online publications that said, you know, millennials value career development and baby boomers don't as much or whatever it was. So I showed him the data and I'm like, look, what you're saying isn't actually true at this company. And the sample size is pretty big. We had 140,000 employees at the time. And we had a very short conversation. It was like 15 minutes in length. I was terrified because I had heard so many stories about how intimidating and intense and smart Mark was and that he can just rip anything apart if he wants to. He did not reflect an opinion in the meeting. He just kind of said, okay, thanks for coming. (laughs) And then I was like, okay, well, I'm either fired or, you know, I've just transformed the world in some significant way. And I just waited for a couple months until HCM World. I was at this event watching Mark Hurd give the keynote address and he had a slide up there. I have a picture of him talking in front of the slide that said, I bought into the myth that millennials were different. Here's what the data actually says. And he shared the data that I showed him. And it completely changed his perspective about millennials and the way he talked about millennials and the way that he led the team. And so I was really proud of that moment that little old me got to make a difference at a big company like that. And that's fab because I, as I said to you, we talked before we started recording, I, I got a copy of your book and I just, because it just seems like a load of bollocks. I just can't believe that, you know, great employees don't care about career development, don't care about a company purpose. And so when people keep saying to me, oh, no, you know, baby boomers don't care about millennials, it just feels like it's astrology. These people are just talking shite at me because somebody said it to them and they just repeat it in an unthinking way. Well, life is complex and there's a lot coming at us and we're trying to simplify it. And the way we simplify it is through labels and putting people in boxes. And it's easier to do it that way. I mean, it is also the way that we've been doing it for years. And 2,500 years ago, Socrates said, you know, young people today, the problem with them is that they value luxury in the place of hard work and they chatter too much. And I mean, those are the exact same complaints that adults today have about young people. So it's just human nature to to say, oh, those young people. I mean, I think maybe, at least for me, I just turned 40. I'm now feeling like I'm getting old for the first time ever. And it's happening because I'm seeing young people using phrases I've never heard before. And I'm starting to feel irrelevant and out of touch. And so I can either say something's wrong with me, which is a self-esteem issue, or I can say something's wrong with them. Right. And it makes us feel better to put people in the out group. It's in group, out group dynamics, Henry Tashfeld. Right. So it makes us feel better about ourselves if we can put others down rather than ourselves. And so it's a defense mechanism that makes us think 
those people are different. Those people have something wrong with them. And it's really made up in our head. Well, there's a, I think there's a, I can't remember who did the study, but it was the, they came up with a study, which was to see what was the smallest amount of something that would allow people to put somebody on the in group versus the out group. And they did a coin toss and they said heads or tails. And if you got a head, you were called you a winner. If you got a tail, you're a loser. And they even double blinded it. So for 50% of the people, they told them they were a winner when in fact they were in, they called the losing head, the losing tail. Within uh, several minutes, the, the winners are taunting the losers from across the other side of the room, right? It's just over nothing. So it's not a thing you can complain about because it's just central to human nature. Yeah. And what happens when you buy into those in-group, out-group dynamics is that you start to alienate and isolate people and then they don't feel attached to this common cause. And that's what the problem is in the business place, right? We have this narrative that's starting to play out where there's employees and there's leaders and they are in two different camps and it's us versus them. And that narrative is a complete illusion. I mean, the the leaders are also employees, right? And we are all in this together. And if you've got a culture that feeds into the us versus them mentality, people aren't going to feel as much belonging, they're, which means they're not going to buy into the strategic direction of the organization. They're not going to care as much about the why and the purpose. It's not their work isn't going to give them as much meaning because they're so wrapped up in this in-group, out-group thing that it prevents them from really coming together in a meaningful way. So as a CEO, the key here is to not let those dynamics play out so that everyone is on board in the mission of the organization, which is to impact the world in whichever way you guys have figured out you want to impact the world. And what you miss is you miss the discretionary effort, all right? You know, your effort drops below a certain point. You're not going to, you're not going to have the job. You're going to get fired. But if we can get you on board, that additional incremental effort from everybody, which they give willingly, compounds every day. And some companies outperform other companies. Yeah. I mean, that's how you get people to give a rip about the work that they're doing is you give them meeting it. There's a quote I just read this morning that said, he who has a why to work for can put up with any how to get there. I mean, it's brilliant. Totally. What? So when you're, when you're consulting with people, I have often, I think people get several things confused. They talk about all companies and the majority of companies are always going to be a bit shit to work for. There will be a slither of companies at the top who care enough to try and do something differently. And so often when people are talking about things like, you know, the employees and management being two separate groups, it's probably true in lots of organizations that that's how the workers feel like they're the workers and there's the management. And the management probably don't care. And that's okay, right? Because otherwise there'd be no competitive advantage in solving a problem around culture or attempting to do something around culture. But if you're working with guests, the companies who care, who want to make a difference, what are your, do you have a playbook? Do you, is there somewhere you always start? Is there a... Yeah. So um, in working at Oracle for 10 years, I came up with a model for intentionally crafting culture to drive results, which is the culture equation. That's what uh -huh. it's called. 
And the culture equation is your purpose plus your strategy powered by culture equals results. So we always start with purpose, understanding why the company exists, making it simple for people to remember and impactful. It, it has to be meaningful. It has to be measurable. It has to be memorable. Not the purpose. The purpose doesn't have to be measurable, but it has to be something where people can remember it, right? And so there's a lot of companies out there who have two sentence long purpose statements. We exist to impact the world by influencing our stakeholders and including our employees in the development and manufacturing of aluminum, you know, and it's like, oh my goodness, I have no idea what you're talking about, you know. I'm asleep already. Right, exactly. We say if you can get your purpose to six words or less and it's powerful and it can't have anything to do with making money or you know, growth or being number one. It just has to be the why. Our why at Culture Partners is to unleash the power of culture. That's really powerful. You know, we know exactly what we're about. That's our why. Then we work on strategy with leaders to make sure that they can simplify the how. We figured out the why. What's the how? What big bets are you making? And what? how are we going to measure? This is where the measurable, meaningful, memorable part comes in, where people need to understand the big three key results. We recommend you stick with three because of the three-legged stool. It's just a more memorable number. And then the strategic anchors, the big bets that you're making. Once we figured out the why and the how, we talk about culture. And you asked me at the beginning of this, the definition of culture. It's the way people think and act to get results. And this is where it gets fuzzy for leaders, right? This is the part where people are like, yeah, but how do I actually transform the way people think and act to get results? And, and we have a model that is very simple that once you get it, it starts to click on how to transform intentionally and operationalize and scale culture. And it's called the results pyramid. Uh -huh. So I'll break it down really quick. The top of the results pyramid is results. We've just figured out what results you want in your why and your how, right? We want to know that so we know where we're going. Our belief is that your culture, let's say you're my client, right? Your culture is perfectly aligned to the results that you're getting today. It's absolutely perfect. Totally. Whether you're win, lose, or draw, you, your culture is getting you all those results. Perfect. All of the results that you're getting. And, you know, frankly, we I would say more than 50% of the clients that we have are doing great. They're, they are actually really good. They're not like toxic, horrible, bankrupt, you know, falling apart companies. They're companies who are thriving. But now they see something on the horizon that they want to grow towards that's a really big transformative effort that's on the way. And they know that culture is the way to do it. So what culture will be required to get those results? That's the question that we ask. And the so at the top of the pyramid is results. The thing that drives results at a company is the actions that employees take, right? I mean, what you do is what, what ends up getting a result, even if what they do is quiet quitting, right? I mean, like when I quiet quit back in 2000. That got the company a result, which was way less productivity. Somehow they thought that was better performance, right? But I mean, that was a result. So e even if your people show up and take a nap all day, you're getting a result out of that action. Well, then we really, that's where most people get stuck. They're like, well, what should we get people to do? And what results are we getting? And what should we, you know, so your leader says, we're trying to get $100 million in sales. Did we get it? No. Okay, maybe we should reorganize the team. Okay, let's restructure. Da, 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 da. Let's go back to the results. Did we get $100 million? Nope, not yet. Okay, let's hire a head of innovation. Maybe that'll do it. We hire a head of innovation. Did we get $100 million? Yes, we did. Fantastic. Okay, well, now we need to make $150 million because it never ends, right? So now we go back to actions. Okay, how about we implement 
implement this new software that's going to help us. Great. Did that get us $150 million? You know, we're back and forth and back and forth. And it's like this rat race that leads to burnout, that leads to people getting frustrated. I mean, and it's just the never ending circle. So great leaders go beneath the level of actions to beliefs because that is what actually drives people's actions. What they believe is what drives their action in a proactive way. And you touched on it earlier in your question, which is, do they care? That discretionary effort, you know, is what we're doing here important? Is that strategic anchor the right bet? Am I cared about here? Do my colleagues have our best interest at heart? Are we all in this together? Those are the kind of beliefs that you need to drive in order to get people to take the action so leadership isn't just micromanaging people all day long. And the thing that drives beliefs is experiences. So what we consult around is creating very intentional experiences every day because we're getting thousands of experiences a day, right? How can we influence the intentional experiences that need to exist in order for people to get the beliefs we need them to have in order to drive the actions we need them to get in order to get the results that we need to get? That's it, you know? And once you systematically implement a infrastructure to scale that, you see real business results. And that's why people keep calling us. And what types of experiences are you talking about here? I mean, I'm thinking it might be pay and reward, like inconsistencies between we've told people we want to do them a thing to do a thing and then we pay them to not do it. Yeah. So or not or, or, or whatever. Every client has different experiences that they need to focus on. There are some universal experiences that work across the board, things like feedback and recognition and storytelling, right? The way we talk about what's going on and how we tie what we recognize and the feedback that we give and the stories that we tell to the results we're trying to achieve and the beliefs we're trying to nurture, you know, those are daily, everyday. The social currency and how it gets doled out. Yeah. But then there's also things like pay and rewards. And that is one of many, many systems that we dig into at an organizational level, because you might decide we're going to drive a cultural belief of risk-taking so that we can get more innovation, right? And that is going to give us a result. It's like, fantastic. Well, it turns out in order for me to purchase something that costs more than $250, I need to go through seven levels of approvals, right? That's an experience that says, don't take a risk. <laughs> and yet I've got a leader telling me to take a risk. And so what we need to do is dig into each client to understand what systems they have that misalign with the beliefs they're trying to nurture that are going to get them the actions from their employees that will get them the results they want to achieve. Okay. Have you got some great stories where you've been able to get a client to change an experience and you can track it, track it up to a result? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the client list that we have, they're all names that you would recognize. And what we do is we go in, it's a, we really have a three-year journey that we create for people. So we say, okay, here you are. Your culture is perfectly aligned to the results that you're trying to get right now. What would you like to achieve? And one example I can give you is a, a credit union that we worked with. And they said, we want to increase the members that we have. We want to increase the investments. We want to increase. They had all these specific metrics. They picked three that they wanted to transform. And they said, here's the problem. We're siloed. 
We cannot get alignment across the organization, the cross-organizational, that lateral integration isn't there, like every department. And, and that really was coming from leadership tension and leadership challenges that everyone was aware of. We're also not taking risks. We need to be more innovative. So how do we get there? We started by identifying the key results they wanted to achieve and their purpose and their strategic anchors, right? That's the culture equation. And then we said, all right, well, if you're trying to create integration and break down silos, what exactly kind of experience would your employees need to have in order to develop the belief that that things have changed, right? That we're not going to be working in a silo anymore. And that led to a brainstorm at the at the leadership level and in focus groups where people said, okay, well, we need to see a united front amongst leaders. So what they ended up doing was they, first of all, had a literal bury the hatchet ceremony where they buried a hatchet outside in order to demonstrate that the drama of the past was in the past. Then they, every time one of the leaders creates, had a, like started a meeting, like a town hall meeting, they would have two leaders from two different departments kick off that meeting to show alignment at the leadership level. So they were being really intentional about experiences they could create besides just giving feedback and besides just, you know, recognizing people for when they collaborated, which was a big part of how they did that. And over the course, I mean, you start to see results in like six months, but over the course of this entire engagement with this credit union, they were Redstone Credit Union was the client. They had 55% growth in annual non-interest income. They had a thousand percent increase in loans, a thousand one hundred seventy-nine percent increase in membership. I mean, the results that came from thinking intentionally about culture were dramatic and measurable. And they continued, you know, after the three years, they were like, okay, what's the next big goal? And they created a next big goal so that they could continue to evolve culture because culture can't stay static, right? It's not like the culture that exists for you when you're a startup is the same culture that will work for you as you grow. And that's why we stay culture agnostic. Okay. And when doesn't it work? It doesn't work when leaders aren't bought in. It doesn't work when you don't have the CEO saying, this is great. I'm all in. Let's do it. A lot of times you have, uh, and we figure this out early on in the process, and you know we don't work with those clients because we can just see it's going to be a fruitless effort where you've got executives on the leadership team who are really bought in and they know that they can make a difference and they want to do it. And they bring the CEO into this conversation and the CEO is like, yeah, that sounds good. We'll let HR handle it. I don't want to be involved in this, you know. HR can lead the effort, but if the CEO doesn't think it's valuable or important, it's not going to be worth it. Okay. And then where can people get stuck and where are they often underestimating the amount of effort that they're going to have to put in? Okay. Well, yeah, I can speak to that. I mean, this is something that requires everyone in the company to contribute to. And we what we do is we facilitate culture champions that can lead the effort. We identify um, culture leads that have their own role to play in the implementation and, and adoption. We have leadership training where the leaders all can buy into this. And what needs to happen is the follow through on the commitment to create intentional experiences, right? We decide we're going to do things differently. This is how we're going to do things. And it requires effort. You know, I mean, one of the things that we'll say is, okay, give 
three pieces of feedback every single week. Recognize two people every single week and tell a story every week, you know, three, two, one, every single week. And then it really is up to everyone on the team to take accountability to do that. And sometimes that falls down, right? And so what we do, we actually, have you ever heard of the book, The Oz Principle? Uh Yeah. So that's us. We have an entire offering around taking accountability because we see that taking accountability is a problem sometimes for some people because they think of accountability as who's to blame, who whose fault is this, right? And what we need to do is shift the thinking to positive accountability, to really think about accountability is a decision to make a personal choice. I'm going to rise above the circumstances, whatever the toxicity is or whatever my peers are doing, whatever my boss is doing, whatever my team is doing, and I'm going to show up differently. I'm I'm going to see it, own it, solve it, do it, which is this four-step accountability process that was written about in the Oz Principle that is the basis of our entire accountability offering. And so really, I would say that accountability is one superpower that we like to enforce, make sure that the culture transformation doesn't fail. Because it can be hard for people, you know, to it's easy to get into that victim mentality. The process seems very similar to me to when I'm working with clients and they say, we'd like some more accountability. And we say, okay, well, maybe we put in objectives and key results as a framework. People go, yep, yeah, yeah, great idea. And then changing their behavior is hard. So when you say, you know, telling a story every week, giving praise three times a week, people go, yep, 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 yep. It gets to Friday. They go, shit, haven't done anything. Do you have somebody making sure that on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday that they get a nudge so that they remember? Yeah, I mean, that's the the culture champions and the culture leads and the advocates within the organization that we train up to take on that role of accountability. Our goal is not to be in the business forever. Our goal is for them to learn how to create and intentionally transform culture themselves to align with their key results. Our job is to create an experience in doing that where they believe it is the way to succeed. I mean, we're creating an experience as the consultant for our clients that needs to drive a belief, right? That doing the recognition, doing the feedback, doing that will make a difference in them achieving success. And so that's on us. And and I think we do it pretty well. Fab. Um, Jessica, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? Hmm. How earlier? Whatever works for you. Could be last week. Could be as late as last week. Oh, man. As late as life. Whatever you like. Yeah. I mean, I've gone through a pretty personal transformation in my own life. I'm a very different person, I would even say, three years ago than I am today. And that experience has been, you know, three years ago, I mean, I'll just tell you, I got into recovery and I had a a life perspective, a life view that was wildly different back then than I do now. And so there's so many decisions that I made in my life in the last 40 years that were from that old perspective. You know, it was that victim mentality. I wasn't making a decision to rise above my circumstances and take accountability. And um, I wonder how different my life would be today if I had figured that out earlier in my life, you know? Thank you for sharing that. That's great. What books, other than Unfairly Labeled, which is sort of bursting the myth about age 
that people of a particular age are in any way similar at all and that people are just people. I say the same thing often actually to clients about salespeople. I say salespeople are just people, you'll find, or contractors in your business are just people. Why do you why do you treat your contractors differently to your employees and then expect them to behave like your employees? What what other books do you think people should pick up and read? I'll give you a couple business book recommendations and then a couple personal book recommendations. The business books are The Oz Principle, which I mentioned, which is all about taking accountability. And then a culture book is Change the Culture, Change the Game. Two extraordinary business books for any leader to read. At a personal level, I love the book The Way of the Pilgrim, which was written by an anonymous 18th century Russian peasant. It's surprisingly easier to read than it sounds. And it was all about... <laughs> His journey to figure out how to pray ceaselessly, which is a journey I'm on to. So I loved reading that. And then my favorite fiction book is uh, Everything is Illuminated by Jonathan Safran Foer. Just for fun. That's just a good one if you haven't read it. There's a movie too, but the book is way better than the movie. Okay. Oz Principle, we talked about a bit. Tell me more about Change Culture, Change the Game. Change the Culture, Change the Game by Roger Connors and Tom Smith. It's all about how to transform organizational culture intentionally using that results pyramid. And it it's the key. It's the key to unlocking transformation at a business level. And it's written by two people who are who really understood what they were talking about. Fantastic. Jessica, what's one thing people should do differently tomorrow? Meditate. <laughs> I think if everyone started meditating, the world would look really different. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for being on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.